welcome back to tonight movie. Today we are talking about the French neo noir neo noir crime film *Les Samurai*, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, released in France, October twenty fifth, nineteen sixty seven. Ben, the plot, please. So hitman Jeff Costello is hired to kill the owner of the nightclub Marty's, but is still detained by the police's suspect. The film follows Costello's attempt to to throw off the police to throw the police off his tail and finding out who hired him to kill the nightclub owner. A few interesting things. Um Les Samurai is the uh it's <laughs> it's the proto movie for pretty much all of the new Hollywood movement in the seventies. Um uh, I should say Jean Pierre Melville in general is. Uh his uh work includes um oh shoot. Army of Shadows about his time actually. It's autobiographical mm-hmm. autobiographical piece about his time in the French resistance during World War II. Um, and he's done a couple other crime films, which is, I mean, what he's you, known for, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as it's, as you can see from the 1970s, you can see his reach where a lot of the new Hollywood movement, like Martin Scorsese, uh, shoot, who did Godfather for his, like Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. uh, and the others ha- heavily, heavily drew upon his influence um, during the movement. And we definitely saw that when watching this movie speaking of the godfather the u.s they released an english dub version of les samurai in what was it yeah 1972 called the godson to capitalize off the godfather um apparently it didn't do too well um it was just a huge flop no one really liked it but then i believe the movie les samurai was actually officially released in the united states nineteen ninety seven, like give or take like mid to late nineties. Like mid to like actually like I guess released in theaters. Mm-hmm. I tried to find the actual date. It was mm-hmm. not Google was not working in my favor on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alright. So like okay, I want I wanna ask you about the script or like lack thereof because there's not a lot of talking in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot just a lot of camera action and Basically, a lot of camera action. Because I'm sorry, I don't know if this is just a French thing or a noir thing. Cause I don't I think or a film noir thing. Because this is the first I think film noir I've actually seen. Um, but they make the characters and the actors, and maybe this was the intent, have made little to no facial expression. I don't think I ever seen any of the characters like crack a smile once, and they're mm. just like very stone face and stoic yeah and they were, sure they were a little <laughs> Chandler Easter Island a little bit yeah yeah uh it's yeah that's interesting so you'll see, we're gonna talk about Mean Streets uh some next uh next week um or we're sorry we're gonna watch Mean Streets soon and you're gonna mm-hmm. see a lot of similarities in that regard with okay. Harvey Keitel uh Harvey Keitel's character is a lot based off Jessica Jeff Costello uh gonna be very stone faced not gonna show a lot of emotion um but when he does show emotions it's gonna be very telling it's definitely a character that's, and also I should say uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather, um, Michael Corleone, there we go. Mm-hmm. A lot of their characters are judged a lot less in dialogue and more in action, as we did, we'll, we will definitely see, uh, and, and we're not going to spoil it, but towards in, in the ending, you, def, you see Jeff Costello's true character through really? no dialogue of his own, <laughs> okay. uh, through not saying anything of his own, uh, he ends up doing going through certain actions where you end up finding out who he is despite the fact that the guy doesn't say more than a couple dozen words in the entire freaking movie this is true i think 
And I think it just goes for all the characters. They only say a very small handful of lines. Mm-hmm. And there's um, a scene where you have the license plate guy. Yeah. He tells Jeff, he's like, this is the last time. And looking at him, I'm like, oh, that's kind of foreshadowing what happens at the end. Part of me wants mm-hmm. to say what happens at the end because I want to talk about it, like my theories. But at the same time, do anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I don't want to spoil it. That makes sense. So I'll, I'll debate. But... But again, it's like kind of due to the dialogue, relied on the body language, still no facial expression. Sometimes I was kind of lost on what was going on and how they were feeling. And I couldn't, I still could not figure out the relationship between Jeff and um, one of the women he, t- women he talks to, Jane. I couldn't figure out if they were friends. Oh, no, they were dating. Lovers yeah. or dating. No, no, they, they were, were lovers, yeah. Again, it's one of those things, though, you have to watch the movie a couple times, like, oh, and kind of judge from the way they talk about each other. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay, so kind of, like, going into, like, cinematography and how the camera angles work, because um, Dad, our father, he came in a couple times. Um, at least I think I say for I want to say like twenty-ish minutes of the movie, just because he was passing by and he got kind of interested in how the camera angles worked and it kind of was looked like it was in like one single shot almost for a lot of yeah, the scenes. Yeah, so it was released in '67, and if you look at the '60s, it's still it's uh it's at the end of the studio system, but it's still in the studio system. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of sound. It, we were talking about Hail Caesar a couple uh a couple weeks ago, and Hail Caesar. <laughs> it's this is in that era still. Which is what makes this very yeah. interesting, um, and I'm gonna don't worry, I'm gonna write cinematography in a second. So I was talking about the New Hollywood movement earlier. So what ha- what happened was these film students like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. By the way, they were all friends. Um, I don't know about Martin Scorsese because I think it was more East Coast. Um, yeah. But Coppola, Spielberg, and Lucas were fa- very famously friends um, at USC. What they would do is they would get bored from the movies that they were seeing American films in American theaters. So they would start going to the art film theaters, uh, which okay. uh, the Samurai was one of them, but it was also the Circle Rouge, Army of Shadows, all the others. Uh, they would go to the art film theaters and watch those films. And they're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I love how these French films are using their camera work. While, you know, it was very stiff sort of cinematography. Uh, I don't want to say poor man cinematography because that's not doing it justice to Ben-Hur yeah. and other movies, but of the time um and then you very much see uh oh yeah like a big difference like oh i didn't know you could do that with a camera and you have an impressionable 20 year old who's looking at it like wow this is so cool uh, mm-hmm. and around that time i think the first the flagship of the new hollywood movement uh bonnie and clyde 1968 something like that something like oh, that i can't remember range, yeah. uh Bonnie and Clyde came out, which was like the first American Americanized version of a French movie, yeah. film. Yeah, um, came out, and then we have the New Hollywood movement. So yeah, it's it's very interesting when so talking going about cinematography, you see a lot of that creative camera work happening in okay, yeah. The Godfather, despite the fact that The Godfather, except for Bonnie and Clyde and like very few others, was one of the first to do it. Okay, and then you see Francis Ford Coppola continue that uh, streak on through Godfather Part Two, The Conversation. And Apocalypse Now, which by then he, him, between him and Scorsese had, and actually uh, Spielberg and Jaws had mainstreamed this sort of cinematography, which, you know, probably the French were just yeah. like, eh, I don't want to do this anymore now, it's too mainstream. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this. They broke the mold. They're like, all right, yes, we're good. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I will, like, say, going off of that, 
ish. They did because it is set in Paris, if I remember correctly, the movie. Yeah. And I believe it was filmed there. Mm-hmm. And oh, location. Yeah. Fil- Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you one it's more fine. time. Location <laughs> filming is also a new hallmark of the new Hollywood movie. Because what would happen mm-hmm. is, um, and this was, this is actually really hilarious. Uh, it got to the point that audiences in the mid '60s were starting to recognize, like, uh, it was what movie was it? It was uh, it was a movie based off King Arthur. I can't even remember the freaking name of the movie. No idea um, what you're talking about. So I can't. Yeah, it was based around the night of the Round Table, and it's and it was a massive flop. And people and they were asking people, well, "Why was it such a massive flop?" And they're like, "Well, the movie was okay, but you were trying to make it set in medieval England." And it's obviously set in Burbank Hills because you've been doing on the same soundstage <laughs> that you've been recording it, yeah. the TV shows for last and films for the last 20 years. They're like, oh crap! So that's when they started doing on location stuff, uh, and that's where they got and they got the idea of a lot of new Hollywood guys got the ideas mm-hmm. of doing on location stuff from Le Samurai and the other French New Wave films. Mm-hmm. Kind of going off that, like, continue our little mm-hmm. side tangent. I do think like on location is a lot better. Yeah. And then doing soundstage because I'm going to talk about the sound of music. Um, I think that was actually a good movie to of how they use their location. For a lot of the interior shots, they did like soundstage in Burbank, Southern California area, which made a lot of sense. I'll, I think for all the exterior shots, especially the opening scene where you have Julie Andrews, oh, yeah, this is the sound yeah. of music, first of all. One of the best. Um, cinema scenes ever just because you have her like on a hill and saying the hills are alive with the sound of music and oh my goodness I love Julie Andrews I can go on and on about how I think how amazing this woman is just in acting and singing in general but that's for a different time mm-hmm. but I think but they filmed that in Austria mm-hmm. I think it was Sal- Salisbury I think it was and they they made good use of it but a lot of the other interior shots they did use the soundstage yeah and i think that that is a good way to use on location and on set it saves them a little bit of money because uh sometimes depending on the country it can be very expensive to film in certain areas because it's like okay like what what are the rates um like how much do we have to pay for flights for hotels for camera operating and then that's just for the entire crew and then the cast and it's insane Anyways, kind of going real go- going back to Lisa yeah. right, in Paris. I like the fact that it looking back, it was never overly spectacular. Nothing was like ever like stood yeah. out. But I like the simplicity because you got this you saw the streets of Paris, you saw Jeff's apartment, Jane's apartment. There's a pianist that's a, plays a mm-hmm. crucial role in this film. You see a little bit of her apartment, the police station. The license plate garage, mm-hmm. um, nightclub, and the metro, and I'll get on the metro. They made good use of those, and it was nothing overly, like, um, over the top. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, and it was. It's interesting. So thinking about those like contemporary films that would do that, American films, um, they were all dramas that would have very little sets. Uh, like mm-hmm. I can only think of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which are both set inside a house. Although mm-hmm. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is like a little, I think it has the street and the diner, and I think about it. Um, both again amazing films that people should watch. Uh, and they were talking about, and sorry, we're talking about that. <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking like I can't think of any thrillers, contemporary thrillers that are not 
uh, that are American that are set in like such Spartan uh, okay, yeah. production conditions, which is which is very interesting because now that happens. I don't want to say it happens all the time, but we can name um, other movies that take place in like one room or a couple rooms or something like that mm-hmm. um, a lot easier than we can from movies in the in the fifties and sixties. This is true. Like my first thought is the murder on the Orient Express, where yeah. it's set in the entire train car, with the exception of like before. There's some flashbacks, like, but yeah. like like some flashbacks, but like with the exception of before getting on the train and afterwards, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. But that entire movie, it's set on one train. Mm-hmm. So like that, like that, making good use of sets, and maybe that's a good episode, like future episode, yeah, like kind of talking about like Hollywood sets and which yeah, ones we think yeah. make good use, but. For, that's for a different day, if, if you want to hear that tangent on us. Um, I want to talk about the metro station scenes. Okay. Because that was probably some of my favorite scenes. You had the first time, so to give a little bit of context to the people who haven't seen this movie. Jeff Costello, he knows the metro station very, very well. And he knows the ins and outs and which trains to go on, etc., etc. And right now, um, he... He killed a nightclub owner. I'm Arnie's, and the um, a witness saw um, like the a- a little bit of the aftermath, and so the police have detained every suspect that is wearing a trench coat and a fedora of sorts, and Jeff Costello being one of them. And so even though Jeff he created a very very solid alibi that looks when you like hear at first glance, hear hear at first thought. Sorry. It seems like, okay, there's no way this can break. It's like, it's extremely solid. But you have the main superintendent, main police chief, to where he's just like, no, something, something's off. So he has his people track Jeff. So in, in one of the first scenes um, of the police tracking Jeff is in the metro station. And, I, and just looking at the way Jeff went in and out of that metro station with ease, like he was never panicked in any sort of way the first time and he just is like all right i'm just gonna keep moseying on away until i need to reach my destination because he does know he's being followed because even though he had a solid alibi he's just like no he's like i have a feeling they're gonna come back and like try to do something i have a feeling they're watching me and he was right Mm -hmm. and then you have um towards the end the metro scene to where kind of a shift in character to where he starts to panic a little bit because at one point I think this is also the only time like that Jeff actually ran because he knows he he's being tracked again and he he's like okay he's kind of panicking a little bit but like not a lot because he's trying to figure out because the police people are now like undercover um and so they look like normal civilians and so he's trying, trying to figure out who's who who's what um and and he later at one point he finds out like a lady one of the ladies following him and he at one point he just starts running which i think that's the first time we ever see jeff his character from very calm cool collected kind of stone cold to where he kind of like i want to say like don't just freaks out but his nerves get the best and he just starts bolting and it's like okay that's a shift because mm-hmm. he didn't do that before and just I like the shift. And I think that was a good for the character. I saw that was probably like the only like big emotion I saw this yeah. entire movie. Like they didn't smell, but he ran. So I'll take that. I'm taking what I can get. <laughs> so did you 
did you have any personal favorite scenes? I love the beginning with the uh, in the car when he's preparing to go off. Uh, like that mm-hmm. entire what was it, like five seven minute sequence, mm-hmm. um, in the beginning was just awesome. Lenny's preparing for the hit. Uh, again, the first five minutes I just think it thought was the coolest thing in the world. Hooked me for the rest of the movie. I'm like, this guy means business. This is super mm-hmm. fun. Like, because you don't really get very many European, especially French mafia films. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool. Let's see where this goes. Uh, yeah, I, and it reminded me a lot of Driver in twenty uh, with Ryan Gosling in twenty eleven. I don't know if you or the Driver. Yeah, Driver. It's called Driver. Yeah. Driver, yeah. This, this movie. Side note: This movie was one of Le Samurai was an, a kind of inspiration for the character Driver. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The driver, Gosling's yeah. Character. Character. I haven't seen it. It's on Netflix, so maybe I will. Anyways, yeah, continue. I have it. It's really good. Um, and it's like again, just a very stone faced guy. It's it's the same thing that happens in uh, Les Samurai happens in Driver. Very uh, motionless guy, um, and he spends half the film. And this isn't a spoiler for either because literally he spends half the film with a hole in his side because <laughs> he got hit. Uh, and he's like a little tiny bit erased against time a little bit. Um, there's even there's even uh. Like some parallels between Jane and uh, the girl in in Driver, which I think is uh, I don't even think she's named actually. It was Michelle Monaghan, I think. Um, yeah, and you you definitely see this the thing I love about this film is it's such it's it's the <laughs> it's the perfect archetype for all future okay. uh, neo noir films. And although I, I won't say it's probably the seminal one, it's definitely the archetypical one because there's mm-hmm. there's a lot more in the late 50s and 60s, uh, especially earlier 60s, mm-hmm. even by Jean-Pierre Melville, that are going to be better precursors to the new Hollywood movement, which is my personal favorite movement. I mean, we got some of the most genius stuff I, we've ever seen in our entire lives out of there. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah. So, kind there of, we go. Yeah, so, kind of going <laughs> off that, like, beginning scene from when you first the credit like the beginning credits to him driving the car i I have to ask actually not not even like that just scene just throughout the movie what was the point of the bird (laughs) i don't understand the the bird was more of a plot device um because it was i mean the bird was for two reasons one i think it was it's it's the only indication that uh jeff has any personality because uh, it's really the has only a, extraneous soul, yeah. yeah it's it's the, really the only actual bright thing in his apartment now i think about it but the other part of it is um and maybe some symbolism in there for someone who's a lot smarter than me uh but the other part of it is it was a plot device for he knew someone was in the apartment based off the feathers he saw from the bird on the ground um, which is how he found the bug, which is uh, okay. which was also a really really good scene too. Holy crap! I thought uh, Alan Delon was really good in that. Um, yeah, incidentally, the lead actor Alan Delon, he's like uh, their George Clooney for like the last fifty years. Like that's how frame famous he's in French cinema, and you can definitely through some of them if if you've seen any of his movies, you can definitely see why he is a superstar, great actor. I think I remember going just on Alan Dayon. He tried to break out in the U.S. a little bit, but just wouldn't work. He was only really popular in France and other parts of Europe. See, I don't see why. He, was, uh, he had, like, the classic good look. Well, maybe he was just a little too late to the game, but he had the like, classic good look that they were looking for in the 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. and I guess 70s. Very suave. Yeah, exactly. I could totally if – he, if he could master the American accent, um, this is going to be an unpopular opinion because mm-hmm. – and by the way, I love Al Pacino uh, – but I could definitely see him as Michael Corleone. 
Um, okay. Keep in mind, this may or may not be a sin, depending on who you ask. I have not seen no. the trilogy. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Uh, so I should. Is it on Netflix still, or, or maybe you? Have no, it? I, I should probably buy it though. You uh, have it? Yeah. I thought you would. I thought honestly, you would have that movie. Well, I've seen it so many it's, times. Like yeah. I've probably seen it a dozen times. You and you Dad see. have think have, go through that and Lord of the Rings trilogy probably once a year. Yeah, probably a little more than for Godfather for me. Yeah. I just I just think the Godfather, well, the duo, the third movie sucks, but I thought the first mm-hmm. two were just apps. I love watching them. You did date, like those th- this is a total side note, but those three and a half hours for both those movies just fly by. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Going off of Al Pacino, this like real quick. I remember it was from my junior year of college, my history teacher, you know what history teacher we're mm-hmm. talking about. He would do, he was first of all, such those random things and <laughs> towards like if anyone else would be like is this man okay um but i remember at one point i don't remember the context i don't think there's even context at all but he's doing something on the computer the computer wasn't complying he did something and he said it in try to do in his best al pacino accent was say hello to my little friend <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember like any of the context at all with this teacher i don't no, think he's a, really yeah he taught a film context. class uh with me he's an amazing oh he's an amazing teacher i wanted to um, take that class but yeah he was the one who got me into he was the one who taught me about a lot of new hollywood stuff that i was talking about the last uh 20 30 minutes yeah doesn't surprise me i, I really wanted to take that class but i couldn't make it work within yeah, my schedule and it irritated me so much because because i remember you took that class and you were like this is one of the best classes i've ever took mm-hmm. On that note, honestly, I think uh, film literacy classes should be taught in high school. Uh, at least, mm-hmm. like, it should be required. It should be required for, I think, English classes should at, at least once or twice a semester have a classic film that they look at and analyze. Because it's just, it's, film is such a big part of our lives, and a lot of people don't have very good film literacy. Uh, although it's interesting, because I think, especially with the advent, this is totally off track now. You're um, <laughs> I think with the advent of Christopher Nolan, Denny Villanueva, and some other direct modern directors, we've gotten the idea that you can make an art film that's also a blockbuster film. And even though mm-hmm. I won't go so far as to say everything, no, everything both of them make are art films, there is definitely that point where you're like, actually, it's where the popular film, where you can be a critical and commercial success. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you can have an enduring impact and legacy. And now that we've kind of reached that uh, apotheosis <laughs> between <laughs> art and art and uh, commercial appeal, not unlike, you know, Dickens 150 years ago mm-hmm. where, you know, we, we read Tale of Two Cities and everyone read Tale of Two Cities in England and we look at it, you know, as boring artsy-fartsy yeah. stuff. Um, I think ne- I think we should start doing a – yeah, like I said, English classes should start talking about films a lot more. Oh, my – And yes. should start – maybe – I should – actually, should probably be more like once a month they go over a film. They, they watch a film together, they go over it, and they start talking about film literacy and stuff like that. I think it's insanely, insanely important, especially in a modern culture. I will say, I had kind of going off that, I had a teacher like that in high, my English teacher in high school, I think sophomore year. I don't know, I don't remember who you had, but he was the guy to where you would always talk about Jaws, like probably I think once or twice a week, maybe even more in class. Like, and then we watched Jaws at the end of the, at the end of like fall or spring semester. But we watched, we re- we had to read Jan Air, which that book was weird to me and it still is very much weird to me we watched the watch one of the movies it was and but we read a separate piece which i'm currently well i've been currently rereading it for like maybe the last year and a half i'm still on go halfway um but then after that he's like okay we're gonna watch the movie dead poet society which 
to this day that and the blue but the blues brothers like tied to my my top favorite films very different from each other but we read the book watched the movie and the reason we watched the movie was a my teacher just really wanted to watch a robin williams movie um in like young robin williams i think this was i think it was after he did good morning vietnam it, yeah let's see 89 came i think it came out in 1989 dead poet society so yeah it would be after good morning vietnam but we kind we kind of went through it and kind of went through the similarities between that and a separate piece but i remember for a couple class periods we kind of just went through the movie and what we liked what we disliked and i think all of us mutually agreed that we did not like the ending at all we understood why it was necessary but didn't like the ending at all i still don't like the ending it makes me sad every time <laughs> but I, I agree with you it needs kind of needs to be talked more and it's like yes you can still do all the essays and all the reading but people get bored with that part of the reason why i don't very unpopular opinion i don't like the great gatsby at all i think it was a very well written book um however my junior english class we kind of like beat that book to death and then we watched the movie i'm like can i just be done with this already i'm kind of i kind of reached my peak point yeah well i think it'd also be from an educational perspective i think it'd just be it'd be extremely important to uh it's a way of understanding art that is only taught in college film classes and i mm -hmm. think that's a little bit of a crime because it's not even that difficult it's it's very yeah. it's very palatable for a high school student to go go through um pretty much even if you're not in freaking ap classes it's very i think it would uh yeah i think we're just we're in agreement that it would definitely benefit uh teenagers and eventually adults everywhere and what i've noticed is that teenagers like they're more engaging and are happier when there's a movie yeah. happening in class <laughs> so it's, like, they don't it's also read a the book. teachers a little bit <laughs> and so it's like it uses that like a little bit each time so trailing back to lay samurai now that we went on a tangent for i don't know how long um would you is it i feel like i know the answer to this already if we were to take out any scene, do you think that it would be a drastic change? Or is it like Hail Caesar to where um, if you take one thing out, it alters the entire I movie? I think the ending's a little... I, I'm not 100% sold on the ending still. Um, yeah, I want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Yeah. But uh, maybe for a future episode, we'll do a spoiler-heavy one. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, the ending's a little bit odd to me. I thought it was... Uh, it, it, it didn't... It was weird. I don't know. I, I, I think I need to read more on it, see some different interpretations of it, but I was not sold on the ending. And if anyone listens to this, watches it, you will definitely see why someone is not sold on the ending. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. It just it didn't, it didn't feel right. And kind of going off the ending, I couldn't tell if... Because Jeff had... Um, he had one last contract with this said employer um, that had him kill the nightclub. And so the nightclub owner. So the night people of the nightclub owner i'm sorry backtrack the people who had jeff kill the nightclub owner um they had one last contract kill for him and yeah i'll say like jeff's endings ending line which which was i was paid to i couldn't tell if that w what that was in reference to i didn't know if that was in reference to him to the guy who like paid him to or to the pianist, because the pianist is also in that last scene. So I'm like, who is he referencing to? And I guess that might be just one unanswered question that we will never get, because Jean-Pierre Melville has sadly passed away many, mm -hmm. many, many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe maybe if we're into uh, Elaine Dion, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Maybe if we went running him one day, like we're walking the streets of France or whatever in Paris, and be like running and be like, "Hi, can you can you explain this to me?" Because <laughs> um, well, he's still alive in his eighties. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe the answer to that's hidden in the title of the movie, "The Samurai." Yeah. In English, and as his own honor code, uh, he ended up yeah. going through that act. In the end, we're just like dancing around. Yeah. <laughs> so this uh, is making you watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. That's an interesting uh, thought. I'll have to come back to that. Anyways. Yeah, I'm trying. I think I have like one last thought, and I couldn't remember what said thought was. Oh, th- this is just like a fun little side note. So yeah, the ending scene to where I'm. I understand why Jean Pierre did not put this in. Uh, he was angry that he didn't get to put it in. And I'm angry that you didn't get to put it in. But at the end. Um, Jeff Costello, the character, he was supposed to smile. Mm-hmm. So we're finally to see some emotion and facial expression, as I have expressed that. That's like the move. That's one thing in the movies. Movie, like for the love of everything, just make crack a smile. So at the end, like John Pierre, it's like okay, I like I want you to smile at the end. Um, and then he found out that Elaine Dion had already done that type of scene. And other movies and Jean Pierre was just like, Are you serious? And he was angry. He's just like, Fine. He's like, All right, we'll write it out because he's already done it. Like, makes no point. Right, right. So like that's all I've got on this movie. Oh, sorry, actually no, one more thing. Do you have any like any like personal favorite characters or did any of them like really stand no, out no, to you? No, no, I mean I love just Jeff Costello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we just, like everyone we just love Jeff Costello. Yeah. I don't have any other comments other than Jeff yeah. Costello. Yeah. <laughs> In conclusion, Jeff Costello. Um, I will say, though, I did like the superintendent slash main police inspector. Kind of rubbed me the wrong way in some areas, but I think the, the actor who played him did a great job. So I give him credit on that. So, But still, in conclusion, Jeff Costello. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Ending of that. Thank you for joining us today. We're talking about Lee Samurai. We are going to be talking about, I think next week, we are going to be talking about Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese. Scorsese. I cannot pronounce words. We'll be talking about that Mean Streets next week. Have a great day.